Coming to you from Silicon Valley, I'm Marcus Edwards, and I'm on the hunt for recruiting leaders, producers, innovators, and pioneers who've made their mark on the industry and can't wait to share their points of view. We'll tackle the tough topics and dig deep to find the answers you're looking for and some actionable advice you can take to the bank. So stick around and stay tuned, and welcome to Recruiting Trailblazers. Okay, so I'm very excited to welcome my guest today to Recruiting Trailblazers. Chris Chula is the president of the US and cross-border operations at Comrise, a 450-person global recruiting company with expertise in many verticals, including information technology, finance, media, and legal, just to name a few. Chris has over 20 years in the business with stints at big players like Agilon, Robert Half, and Modis. So it's my pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Chris Chula. Thanks for having me. You're welcome, mate. Yeah, I'm glad this uh, is a plan that's coming together. We've been talking about it for quite a few weeks now, so I'm excited to get you on the podcast. And I really wanted you to start off in the pre-interview. You told me a bit of a story, which I thought was very interesting, about how your very first job was as a paperboy. Do you just want to run us through that one again, Chris? Sure, sure. So... I grew up on Staten Island in New York City as son of a fireman, and my dad wanted me to be a fireman in the worst way. So I went to the firehouse with him. So in the summer of seventh grade, um, I got invited to take a job to be a uh, take a paper out, to be a paperboy, deliver the newspaper back when the newspapers were popular in 51. So that's what you did when you were a kid. So I made $30 a week in the summer of seventh grade, and I was the richest kid going into eighth grade. And then I realized I wasn't delivering newspapers to a lot of houses on the block. So I asked my boss, how do you sell the newspaper? And she was so happy to teach me. And I started knocking on doors. And I quickly realized I had an affinity to do this because I doubled the size of the paper out on the blocks that I served and got to 60 people I delivered the paper to. I'm making $60 a week. And I realized two important lessons from that. One, that I didn't want to be a fireman, that I didn't fit in to sell, and I knew I wanted to sell from that moment on because you could influence the outcome and your income for yourself through your efforts. And the second thing I learned is that the money equaled freedom. It didn't equal happiness, but it allowed me to make choices in life. And it put me on the trajectory to be in sales from that moment on. I knew that I'd be doing something in sales at a very young age because of it. That's fantastic. It's a great story. What actually was your first sales job? Because you've been in recruiting now for over 20 years. But um, what was your very first sales job? Because I started off selling advertising space in London. Well, when I graduated from college, I didn't know the recruiting industry existed because people didn't talk about it back in the 90s. So I took a job in ocean transportation. So I sold container space on ocean vessels from Asia to the United States. And I was I was really good at it. I learned a lot. I dealt with a lot of different cultures. And I did that for about five years before I got into staffing. Excellent stuff. And looking back at that experience, your very first sales job, I think I definitely can pull still from the lessons I learned in my first sales job. What's the sort of the big thing that stood out to you when you were you know, selling those, those shipping container spaces? I learned a, a general sales lesson. Polite and uh, consistent persistence is really how you build relationships with your customers and listening to them and giving them what they need. And when you can't give them what they need, just be honest about it. Don't try and sugarcoat it, fluff it, you know, talk your way through it. Just tell people the truth and be really honest in a polite, persistent, consistent way. And people gravitate towards that. They want to be 
in a relationship with somebody that they can trust. Absolutely right. And there are some recruiting leaders who sort of enjoy, you know, drawing a lot of comparisons between sales and recruiting. And there are some that I've come across that don't. They think recruiting is very different from sales. Where do you sort of stand on that topic? I think whatever role you have in our business, the sales and recruiting, you're a sales professional. If you're an AE or an accounts executive, you're selling people to your clients to fill their jobs. If you're a recruiter, you're selling the open jobs you have on your desk to the people you're recruiting for, right? And if you're doing the job um, as a true agent, you're also calling passive job seekers that are not actively looking. So then it becomes a real sale. And you have to have great selling skills as a recruiter, just as you would if you're an accounts executive. Yeah. And I'd actually argue that you need to be even better at selling yourself than you do the job that you're looking to fill. Because if you can't sell yourself, if you can't sort of, you know, cross that bridge and build the trust that you were just speaking about, then nobody's going to listen to you about the job that you want to fill, right? I agree. Most companies that we call on as accounts executives are companies where the hiring manager is spending someone else's money. So they'll protect it and covet it and be careful with it. But when you're talking to a candidate, they're making a change in their personal life with their personal income, with their career and their money. So the trust level is exponentially higher because people are making a choice that is personal, very real impact on their life. So I agree with you there. I think as a recruiter, the trust relationship with the candidate has to be much stronger. Yeah. And your company, are you divided up into sort of salespeople and then fulfillment and recruiting? Yes, we, we do um, recruiting. Uh, there's a recruiting desk and a sales desk. Yeah. But there's sales in sales and there's sales in recruiting as well. I think it's important for recruiters to have, you know, that strong grasp of sales as well. Absolutely. Um, good stuff. And we're going to get into some of your sort of leadership philosophies later. But I know for a fact that you take culture very seriously. In fact, you even wrote a book on it called We Culture. And it's something that we talk about a lot on the podcast because I believe that culture is the biggest mover of people, both into companies and out of companies. But everybody's definition of culture is different, isn't it? So what does culture mean to you, Chris? Culture really means to me that we're, we're finding a way to have a, con a, a consistent methodology and how we engage and empower our colleagues to drive results. And that's why that title was added to the book, We Culture, the subtitles Engage and Empower Teams to Drive Results. And, and the way we, the philosophy behind that is we're creating an environment where the leader's job, the first bullet point in our job description is to help your colleagues win. If your colleagues win, the company wins. If the companies win, the leaders win. Yeah. That's true. And I know that you're very big on core values as well. I mean, what's the difference between culture and core values? Well, culture is the defining um, compass of your company. You know, what, 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 do you, what do you expect from people and how do you expect them to um, behave and think and react in an environment? Core values gives you a framework to kind of guide the behavior that you're looking for. So core values is something that is in an organization that should never change. Once you establish the core values, that should be the foundation that guides everything else that you do internal and external to the organization. And they should be well-defined and actionable um, statements, almost statements of what you do. Yeah. So if culture is empowering your employees to consistently do their best, which I think is a great explanation, what would you say are the components of your personal company culture? 
that drive people forward. It's it's really the core values because they're the they're the the that's what's telling people the direction we're heading in and how to execute on what the culture is. So in our environment, we have be positive. People say they can are usually right. We want to take on every situation saying we can succeed and there is a solution and we have to find a way to do it. Right. The second one, if he's the second one, should be collaborative. People who say they can working together can probably get a lot done and usually do. So we want to be collaborative, internal and external to the organization in a positive way and find a way to, yes, working together, capitalizing unique strengths. The third one is honest and ethical. In our environment, recruiting, we get people jobs. We change their lives. If we do it right, we get somebody better job than they had before we met us. So we should tell them the truth and we should tell each other the truth in the environment. And the last one is be the spark where we're constantly gathering information from our internal colleagues, our candidates, and our clients on a quest for continuous improvement. I think this business changes every day, every month, every year. And the best way to stay on top of it is to gather that feedback, listen to it, and make adjustments along the way. Yeah. How do you sort of lead the charge when it comes to sort of embodying those core values and that culture? I think the the first obvious way that we would say for leaders is you have to live your core values. If you define what they are, you have to live them. The second thing is you use them in action in situations where we're guiding behavior. You know, for example, sometimes if we're facing a challenge and we're coming up with a solution and, you know, I might ask the team if we're coming up with something that's a difficult solution, hey, we've come up with the solution. How does this reflect our core values of be positive, be collaborative, honest and ethical, and be the spark. How are we hitting all those four criteria before we present this solution to our candidate, our clients, our colleagues, and to Comrise? So you have to embody them in the decision-making process and reinforce them through the decision-making process. And when the solution is done, test the solution through your values. Yeah, that's great. I like that a lot. Why do you think it's so important for employees these days to join companies, you know, who have like a resonant purpose and culture and values. Because I remember the days, and they weren't too long ago, when this wasn't a conversation anybody was having. And it's really emerged as a very important component to employees when they're looking for work these days to join a company that has, you know, a really strong mission and a strong sense of purpose and, and culture. Why do you think that is, Chris? Well, the old adage is very true. Everywhere you go, there you are. And your core values are inherent to you, whether you like it or not. And if you join an organization where you don't share their values, it's going to be a disconnect for you. You won't be able to be successful in the environment for the long term. You can only um, feign uh, an interest in someone else's core values and belief system if you don't believe for a very short period of time, if you have to get from point A to point B. But consistently over a period of time, who you are will shine through. And if it doesn't fit in the environment, your core values don't fit in the environment's core values. It's it's very slow chance of success. Or even if you are successful, you won't be happy there. So I always recommend that, that people looking at opportunities should understand the core values of the organization and test alignment to their own internal compass and their own core values to make sure they have a good match. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point, Chris. By the way, before we continue, if you or your recruiting team is struggling or stressed out at all and need a fresh perspective and some ideas on how to change things up for the better, I can help. Just ping me on LinkedIn or go to marcuschat.com to book an intro call. Thanks and back to the podcast. 
it's interesting as recruiters, and I applaud the fact that so many people want to join, you know, mission-based organizations these days and companies that want to do more than just make money, but really serve their employees. And it sounds like that's something that, you know, you've really focused on as a leader and it's been very successful at your company, Comrise. Is that right? Yeah. Our mission statement is we get people better jobs than they had before they met us. Right. So that's, that's a, it sounds pretty cool when we say it, but if we're making that actionable through our core values and people believe it, it's going to happen. And that's, that's where the alignment comes in. I've often thought and said on the podcast that I believe at the center of every culture at every company is the way people actually treat each other, you know, both across the company and from top to bottom, the way that you're treated, the way that you feel about your relationship with your employer and all your colleagues defines at the very core of the culture, you know, whether you're going to stay there, whether you're going to leave there, whether you're going to look for another job. And, and I think when you get that bit right, and when people say to each other, I love the way I'm treated at my company, that's what keeps people and that's what stops people from leaving. Would you agree with that? I agree. You know, respect is a personal definition, and that's where mission statement, core values, and culture come into play, because those are things we can define that are universal definitions in the environment that everyone can agree to and abide by, right? Respect becomes a personal thing. It becomes a subjective thing. So we try not to use the word, hey, show each other respect. What we instead do is say, hey, follow the truth of our mission to our, to our market and each other, and let the core values and the organizational culture be your guide in how you make decisions, because then they become the common ground that everybody can act on and it becomes consistent. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. You've also said to me previously that you hire for core values before you hire for experience, which I think is a very interesting perspective. Did I understand you correctly? Yes, this, this is a critical thing, especially in our business and recruiting. Think about it. Our business is really sophisticated in, in your level of interpersonal skills, but it's not complicated. We don't have to know a manual of data stacked as tall as we are, but we do have to have great interpersonal skills. So core values become even more important when you're doing accounts executive sales or recruiting sales, because you have to have a common ground with how you're governing yourself in an environment. And you can't teach core values, skills we can teach all day. So wouldn't it be easier to acclimate someone to our business if they shared our core values and had the core qualities that we think are what make people successful in our environment, the things we can't teach? Wouldn't it be easier to have that person scored high in those areas rather than had a skill set and didn't have that match? From where I'm sitting, yes, because I love the concept of hire for attitude and train for skills. And that sort of sounds like what you're talking about, yeah? Exactly right. What do you do in a situation or even a hypothetical situation where you have someone who's a high performer doing extremely well, but who doesn't embody your core values? Or it turns out that down the road, although they're doing extremely well, is that a sacrifice you're willing to make to keep that person? Or would you rather not have a high performer who doesn't align with your core values around? There's a question I ask first. So any turnover or potential turnover is always the fault of the leader first. You have to point your finger respectfully. You either hired the wrong person or you failed to motivate the right person. If we hired the wrong person, then we have to invite that person to find a new opportunity because the wrong person is the wrong person. If we're not doing what's needed to motivate the right person, 
then we have to change our own behavior to make that person successful in our environment. Sometimes people have the right core values and it's the leaders are the ones who are off the wagon. And that's why you have to take that introspective look first and ask yourself that question to make sure that you've done everything you can to support your colleagues to help them win and be successful in that environment. But in the instance you have the wrong person, even if they're a top performer, my recommendation and my best practices is to you know, go through a process of discussing that person, see if you can get them come term. If they can't, then you have to invite that person to find a new opportunity. You have to ask them to leave. But I think it takes an incredible amount of humility and vulnerability to be able to stand up as a leader and say, I think I'm the one who screwed up here. I think I hired the wrong person, or I think I have not led you to success. And I think that when it comes to, you know, terminating employees, There's always a certain amount of finger pointing that goes on, but it's hard to even imagine a situation where, where leaders, you know, take all the responsibility. It's usually sort of, you know, um, it's a two way street, isn't it? It is. And I always bring it back to personal relationships because everybody can kind of relate to it. And leadership's no different. If you have children or a spouse or someone who's close to you in your life, right? Don't you always feel a little better about the relationship if somebody's willing to come to you and say they made a mistake? So it's no different for leaders and the colleagues, the people you're charged to lead. If you go to them and say, hey, I think I made a mistake here and I'm going to take the steps to make it right. You know, the colleagues will say, hey, you can't tell them you make a mistake every day and you keep making the same mistake over and over. If you made a mistake and tell them why you made it and how you're going to try not to make it again. I think people see that as a good thing and they see it as a vulnerability and they understand that you're human and they respect you for being human. And that's an important part of leading. I think admitting that you can make mistakes and and being honest about them when you make them and taking responsibility for them is an important part of leadership. It is. And I still think it's very hard for a leader to look in the mirror and say to themselves, I'm at fault here. I didn't lead this person to success. Because, you know, you've been appointed a leader and you don't want to be seen as, you know, fallible in front of your team. Um, it's, it's a very hard bridge to cross, I think, for leaders. And I, I imagine, and I, I've led quite a few teams in my life as well. I'm, you know, I'm not sure how honest I've been when it comes to not delivering up as a leader and that being a part of the reason why they had to leave or, or didn't succeed. It's, it's a tough one, isn't it? Yeah, the, it was a tough corner for me to turn, but there's somebody who helped me do it. I read uh, Principles by Ray Dalio when it was a rough draft. And there was something in there that stuck with me. He always said, one of the most successful people in the hedge fund business, he said, always be on a quest for the truth, not to be right. And if you admit the truth to yourself, you'll always sleep well at night. You'll always be a great leader for the people you're charged to lead. So I just decided that I was going to start telling myself the truth, even when it hurt, when I looked in the mirror myself And it made it easier to tell the truth to my colleagues and the people in charge to lead. That is incredibly powerful. And I haven't read the book, Principles by Ray Dalio, but I've heard people talk about it. But that might just sort of tip me over the edge. I might have to go and read that now. Thank you for sharing that amazing quote with us. Um, And good job for remembering it as well. Um, So back to this core values thing, not to labor it too much longer, but how do you interview for core values? If you're more focused on bringing people on who really align with your core values, how do you actually interview people in such a way as, you know, they're not just telling you what they know you want to hear? So we're in a business where people are professional interviews because they coach people on how to interview. So in we culture, 
um, in chapter six on hiring. It's the longest chapter of the book. We talk about how to question for core values and core values are formed early on in people's lives, usually from when they're like 13 up until they're 20, because this is when you start getting uh, managed by people outside of mom and dad or family members, right? You play for a sports team where you manage by a coach, You where it's where there's results counted and winning counts, right? Or you get your first job or you're in school where you're participating in extracurricular activities and their teachers managing that and you have deliverables, right? So you formulate your values and how you look at work. And you also display whether you can apply consistent effort to learn a skill and consistent effort to that skill to drive a result. So I usually start very early on when I'm interviewing people. Tell me about the first job you ever had, first thing you ever did, you got paid for. Where'd you grow up? What was school like? What'd you do in school besides 10 class? And what I'm looking for is consistency. I'm looking for how people looked at those jobs, how they looked at those extracurricular activities, what they said about their coaches, what they said about their leaders. And that tells me a lot about the core values. And then we have a quantifiable process how we measure core values, and then we have specific core qualities or core competencies we're looking for, that we have a quantitative way to measure those through our, deep, our debrief process. And then we come up with quantitative scores and measure it and store the data and track it. Are you using like IQ tests or like psychometric testing maybe? No, we don't. No. It's, really, it's really a line of questioning and it's, it's been really good for us. I mean, the industry is this is, a, this is an industry that's not for everyone. And turnover is typically pretty high in the recruiting industry, especially for new grads or people who are in it. You know, our turnover is well, I've run businesses large and small and staffing. My turnover since we've been practicing we culture has been exponentially lower than the industry, every business I've run. And it's really because we do the core value screening and the core competency screening. And so ultimately, you're happy to take somebody on with a shortfall in experience if they really align with your core values, which is amazing. The best hires I've ever made are people that didn't have industry experience that fit our core values and our core qualities. The person who leads our cross-border group wasn't an industry person. I, I just said it the other day. I think she's the best hire I've made in the past decade. That's fantastic. And I've often thought, and I've often shared with my clients as a recruiter, that it's important, you know, when you sit down to do that intake call, to share with your client that not everybody wants to make a lateral move these days. And it's important for them to consider up and comers and people who do have the right aptitude and the right attitude who might have a shortfall in experience, which aligns with your philosophy. How do you go about educating your clients to sort of widen the net and consider people along the same lines as you consider them? So if a client gives me the opening, because not all clients are open to that kind of feedback, but if they give me the opening, they say, I just wish this person was leading a larger scope of business. I remind them that they were an up comer once. And hey, was there a moment in your career where somebody gave you a shot to go to the next level? And how did it work out for you? And what did you get from that person? What did you get from that person to help you win in that situation? Does this person mirror that situation? Are there, are there similar qualities in this person that can help that where if you put the little bit of extra effort on the front end, that you can both reap the reward together and build a forger relationship that'll last forever on the back end. So that's how I approach that with some of the clients when they say, I just wish they had a little bit more experience leading people. I just wish they had a little bit more experience running a project like this. That's how I bring them back to, hey, do we have a values match? Do we have a core competencies match? 
And is it worth the extra effort on the front end to reap the reward in the back end? Yeah. And how do you sort of differentiate between core competencies and skills and experience? So skills and experience are things you've actually done, tasks you've actually done, experience of things you've actually done, like running a project, or um, did you reconcile the invoices for an IT project? Did you do procurement for IT projects? Those are tasks and skills that you learned. Core competencies are things like intelligence, intelligence, your ability to process information, communication skills, your ability to convey a thought or an idea in a concise manner, or here could thought an idea and convey it in a concise manner. Thought process, how do you think on your feet under pressure? And drive, drive is your ability to apply effort to learn a skill and, and effort to that skill to drive a result consistently. That's a good explanation. And I've always asked the question, you know, if I was to come up with a candidate who does have even a significant shortfall in skills and experience, but they have an incredible aptitude and and a perfect attitude or, or a very, you know, a very gritty attitude, is that a conversation that you'd be willing to have? And, you know, nine times out of 10, the hiring manager says, yes, I'd be willing to talk to somebody who has, you know, the right aptitude and the right attitude. I think the problem lies sometimes when you've got in bigger organizations where hiring managers are literally mandated to hire people who are making lateral moves because they want plausible deniability in the case of something going wrong. So if something does go wrong, they're like, well, they've been doing it for five years already. It wasn't my fault. Rather than, yes, it's my fault. I gave them a chance. They were sort of two or three levels beneath where they needed to be, but I just thought that they were worth a shot. And so, you know, sometimes it's difficult to get that one across the line, isn't it? Yeah. And it kind of suggests something about the culture of those companies. And that culture may be right for that person who has the right experience for that job, right? That wants to make a lateral move and be in that type of role. So we're not saying those companies don't deserve great hires, right? But it says something about their organizational culture and the type of person you have to place there, right? And and the person has to fit in the culture. Take a look at like, I'll give you the caveat. So if somebody has the core values and the core competencies to win an environment with a significant skill set deficiency... What I do is test if I go at a high level to teach them the skill set, can they conceptually understand it immediately and conceptually get it and conceptually be excited about it? That tells me that I'm not, I'm taking much less of a risk. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, Tell me a bit about your leadership style, Chris, because you lead a big company and I imagine, in fact, I think you told me, you know, you've been scaling quite successfully over the last few years. But leadership has changed the way, especially with the whole COVID situation and work from home and the way we inspire and lead. It seems to me successful leaders take a quite a different view about how to lead. It used to be sort of, you know, with a whip and a chair, and now it's much more sort of incentive-based and servant leadership and all that stuff. How have you adapted as a leader as the years have gone by, especially the last few years? So we're in an environment Engage and empower teams, drive results. We're in a business. We need results. We need to have results together, right? But there are ways to get those results without the whip in the chair. People can meet KPIs. So I, I've incorporated a simple question into my, my repertoire when I interact with all colleagues at all levels of the organizations. I stop asking if they got a task done first. I stop asking if they met their goal first or if they made that placement first. Sometimes I start off with more simple questions that are more Uh, questions to engage them. How are you? How's your day going? And ask genuinely. 
And if they tell me good, I ask why it's good. I ask a second level question so they can interact with me and share with me, right? And when they ask me how I'm doing, I share, right? So we can get to know each other, meet each other on common ground. And then we forge a relationship. And then the KPIs, the things that I owe to them as a leader and the things that they owe to me and Comrise as a colleague, they're more apt to deliver those things because they want to deliver those things because they feel connection. And the connection is what builds the bridge and the foundation of the culture, that trust and connection. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that it's more incumbent today than ever before for leaders to develop, you know, the deepest relationship that they can with the people who work on their team. And I'm not talking about just sort of understanding, you know, why they want to make money, but but getting to know them as a human being and understanding what makes them tick and what really motivates them, you know, outside of the workplace as well. Because when you build that level of trust, you can then help course correct that person authentically. And you don't have to do it with a whip and a chair. You can really sit down with that person because you really understand what makes them tick. And then you're a much better leader as a result. How do you, as a leader, course correct people who you know are just maybe on the wrong path or who are struggling to succeed who perhaps maybe just aren't working hard enough as far as you're concerned? What's your sort of style of communication and how do you course correct, Chris? So except first I have to accept the fact that I don't understand. So if I don't understand why it's happening, I have to find out why. And then I have to ask myself the question, did I hire the right person? Am I failing to motivate the right person? And if I'm failing to motivate the right person, I have to ask them, hey, for example, hey, I understand that you had a tough month in September or you had a tough month in October. I'm not here to rake you over the coals for it. What I want to say is, why do you think that happened? What, what could have been different? What could we have done different together? You know, how can we work together? And I want to see if the person's emotionally intelligent enough to take responsibility for their part in it, has the intelligence and the communication skills and the thought process to communicate back to us where we could have been better, right, in a constructive way, and then make action items together so we can get back on the right path, and then agree and shake hands to who's accountable for what, and then do it. Yeah, that's a good plan. To what extent does metrics drive your business in terms of like activity metrics and outcome metrics for your salespeople and recruiters? Is that a big part of your culture? Yes. We focus on meaningful data. Um, we don't count phone calls or visits or any of that that nonsense or talk time. So you're about outcomes? Outcomes, submittals, interviews, offers, hires. And what, what we're really looking at is the data doesn't tell me if something's bad or good. It just tells me where to look first, right? Yeah. Where should I start digging? Where do I need to spend time today? Who needs our help? That's what the data really tells us. And then sometimes consistent trends in the data may tell you when you have to take action. Look, we're, we're a business like any other business. We do hire people. We do let people go. If we hire the wrong people, we do release them. And even if we fail to motivate the right person, sometimes if the relationship's failing over a long period of time, you have to accept the fact that it's not working, no matter why it's not working. And that person may be better off in another environment. Yeah. Another sort of phrase that you used when we were chatting previously was trust first um, and that you run a trust first environment. Can you explain that to me, Chris? Sure. I've heard this my whole career. When you hire people, you got to watch what they do because they have to earn trust. And I thought to myself, like, 
God, why would we go through this protracted interview process to hire someone that we don't trust? And if we're saying, hey, people have to earn trust, what we're basically telling them is we don't trust them. And the message that they have back for us is, well, if, if the leadership here at this company doesn't trust me, why should I trust them? And if you don't have trust, how can you get anything done? So we take a different approach. And the approach is that we tell people when we hire them, you've trust from day one. The only thing you have to do is not violate it. So if you're doing these things, you have our trust unconditionally. We're going to assume positive intent in everything you do as long as you show it to us. And we're going to give you that positive intent reflected back tenfold because we hired you because we trust you. Actually say the words so people know we're serious about it. It's not just an inferred thing. We actually say it out loud. That's fantastic. And I think that's that's the way it should be, really, because... Um... You've gone through the interview process. You've offered the job. You're basically at that point, you should say, like you said, we trust you. We've looked into your background. We've got to know each other a little bit. Let's go together and achieve this success together. Um, sorry to harp on about performance management, but you know I've got some feelings about the way some recruiting leaders harp on about the volume of activity that recruiters are doing. How do you handle those delicate situations where you feel perhaps that somebody isn't quite doing enough? even though they might be doing it quite well. I always find that that's a very tricky conversation to have because I don't believe you can teach hunger. So see, so the final outcome is what we're looking for in any recruiting firm. We're looking for an environment where we're making effective placements that get people better jobs than they had before they met us and meet an outcome-related goal. The outcome-related goal should be something we come up with together that fits the company need and fits the individual need. Sometimes the individual wants more than the company, and that's okay right? Then we have to devise a plan with activity, meaningful activity that achieves that goal. So why do we focus on subs, interviews, offers, and hires? Because if we measure that over time, we can determine that each individual will have a unique batting average. How many subs, what percentage of those become interviews, and what percentage of those become offers, and what percentage of those offers become placements. And then we could diagnose where the deficiency areas are for coaching, right? It's a batting average, just like any batting average. And everybody's statistics are a little unique to them. So that's how we work on it. And if we're focused on how we help our colleagues win, when we sit down and say, hey, look, you, your offers should, you should be looking at at least four to five offers becoming a placement, even in a super competitive candidate hot market, right? So how are you closing people? What are you talking to them about? You know, what are the things you're discussing with them prior to close and pre-close to set up that close? So an offer accept becomes gratis. When an offer comes, it's gratis. What are you doing to manage your client relationships? The offer delivered is always something that the candidate you present the candidate at what they're looking for, so they'll accept. Just an example. So that's how we really look at the metrics. If there's a consistent, if the metrics are consistently low, then we're not driving the result for both parties, the employee and the employer. And then we have to go back to: Is this the right match? Are we doing what we need to motivate the right person, or did we fail to hire the right person? Yeah. That's a good approach to metrics because I think metrics uh, are very good at sort of telling the story and revealing, you know, where potentially there are problems in the throughout the process, whether it's at sub stage, whether it's at interview stage, whether it's at offer stage. And then you can pop the hood on that problem and sort of see where you need to help that person resolve. I like that approach to metrics a lot. And I think it's a better way of using metrics than just saying, you've got to do more, you've got to do more, you've got to do more, right? What's your favorite question to ask 
your employees. You walk into the office, there's a bunch of people sitting at their desks and smiling back at you. What's the favorite question that you love to ask employees? I love to genuinely ask people, how are you? I really genuinely want to hear how they are. I, when I ask you how your weekend is, I really want to hear what you did that weekend. I'm not asking. It's not just to be polite. Yeah. I want I to know you. I, I want to know who you are. I thought I might be teeing you up there for something that you said to me before when you said, who did you bring to work today? So, so who do you bring to work today? It's a little different. So who do you bring to work today? That is a we culture thing. So be worth it is the last chapter in the book. And it really talks about who creates the culture, right? And the answer is we all do. So I bring someone to work to every day. I brush my teeth every morning. And you know what I'm thinking about? What do I got planned for today? What's going on today? And how am I going to go to those meetings? What am I going to do to be a good partner to my colleagues and help them win today? How am I going to bring the right attitude, the right energy? What energy do I have to bring? What tools do I have to bring? How's today going to be a little better than yesterday for the colleagues? And we say that out loud. And then we ask the colleagues, too, sometimes when they're a little down, hey, who'd you bring to work today? I know who I brought. I brought this guy, right? So who did you bring to work today? And we I like everybody it. in that mode. <laughs> I like Everyone. It. So do you want to change your answer to that's your favorite question? <laughs> it's like, it, it is a question I'm asking myself in my head. Right. So who do you bring to work today? I only, I, I only feel I have to ask that of a colleague if I need to get them back in the right headspace. How are you is my favorite everyday question to ask. But the right. question I'm asking myself every day, it's my favorite question. You're absolutely right. Is okay. Chris, who are you bringing to work today? And I know yeah. who I'm bringing to work today. I think it's kind of a fun question to ask somebody because it's there's a little bit of humor in it as well. So you can almost get someone to sort of self-reflect and go, yeah, you're right, Chris. I, um, I didn't bring the right person to work today. Exactly. <laughs> and so it's a nice way of saying, come on, let's get back to work. Anyway. Yep. Um, hey, what do you think recruiters these days? I mean, it's so competitive. There's so many distractions. There's so many tools. There's so many different ways of doing the job. What do you think recruiters need to do differently? Or how do you think they need to differentiate themselves in, in the market today where there's just, there's so much noise, so much noise, so much going on. And, and as I said, you know, so much competition. Lose the boiler room talk, the hardcore sales pitch, and have good conversations with you, your candidates that you're speaking to. I, I like to use language that's more thoughtful when I talk to candidates, when I hear recruiters say, hey, I found your resume in our database and I wanted to call you because the algorithm said you were a good skills match for this job. Uh, if, when I used to call candidates, I, I had something I used to like to say to them, especially that if That sounded like an apology. Hey, Marcus, do you have a few minutes? I thought of you today and I wanted to tell you why. That's fantastic. I <laughs> yeah, love just, it. Just I mean, have what, a real conversation with somebody. Yeah, I love that. I think the one before that you were just saying, I found you in the database and I just wanted to do this, that, and the other. That's an apology right yeah. off the bat. I mean, that's not going to set the table for a successful conversation at all. That's sort of admitting that you're infringing upon that person's time right away. You never want to apologize at the beginning of a phone call. It doesn't work. Yeah. Everybody likes to be thought of. That's the way I felt about it. And the real reason I'm calling that person, because I did think of them. Are you telling me uh, at Comrise, your recruiters actually pick up the phone without a calendar appointment? Yeah, we do. Yeah. <laughs> and we reach out via LinkedIn and we, we do all the cold outreach that's necessary. And really, if you're building good relationships with your candidates, sometimes you can reach out to the people that you've already talked to and say, hey, I'm reaching out 
to my network because I don't have the answer and I need help to find it. Does anyone know someone like this? Yeah. And if you do your work up front, your due diligence, if you build those robust relationships from the word go, from the very first conversation, you earn the right to get back into your database and start talking to those people again, because they already consider you, you know, at some level, a trusted advisor or a confidant in the business. If you're a transactional recruiter who's only ever interested in finding out whether people are interested and available, you won't be able to sort of pull that lever, will you? Exactly. Relationships start, it's cradle to grave in our business. It starts on the first phone call. And if you're really good in this business, the first phone call you make will turn into a years-long relationship where people are your client and then your candidate and then your candidate and then your client. Fantastic. Now, are you still scaling the business? Are you still looking for people, for good people, new recruiters, new salespeople? We're always looking for good people. There's always room for good people. But we are scaling the business. We we focus more on organic growth. Like We like to scale it in, in a, a reasonable and sensible manner. I feel like the years where I had a big publicly traded companies where they tell us to stack the deck. You know, if we hire 10 people at once to a team that's 10 people deep and turn it to 20, we tend to dilute the effort of the 10 who helped us get there. So we tend to scale and be careful about who we hire and do a better job retaining people and have less turnover. But we are looking for great people. If someone wants to talk to us or someone has a referral or a friend who wants to be part of our we culture, come see how we can include you. Wow. Fantastic. Well, you heard it here first on Recruiting Trailblazers. Chris Tula is hiring. And how can we find you, Chris? So you can reach out to me on LinkedIn. I, I broadcast a big signal out there, or you can get me at chris.chula at comrise.com. I actually have my contact number on my LinkedIn profile. People call it and it's my cell phone number. Fantastic stuff. Well, I really appreciate you coming along and having a great chat with me today on Recruiting Trailblazers. Thanks again, Chris. We'll speak again soon. Thanks for inviting me. Cheers.